Our sermon today will be taken from the book of James, chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, and chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Here's the word of God. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you reach. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Thus says the Lord. We pray for us one more time before we start. Father, help us grasp your word and understand uh, what's in it. Soften our hearts, especially particularly, Father, for this passage, uh, which is direct, and it takes a, uh, um, a degree... Every passage does, but this one we know, and we beg you for more of uh, that mercy so that our hearts may be uh, able to receive, softened. Our pride may not buck up, but take what it is you want to tell us in this passage today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right. So if you've been with us for the past few weeks, uh, you know that we're in the book of James, and we're going through that series. We're preaching it from beginning to end. And if you remember, uh, the book of James is originally a letter written by James. And if you read the whole letter as a whole, you're, you're going to find this part of the letter seemingly maybe a bit disconnected from the rest of the letter. But it's really not. Let me remind us, the purpose of why James wrote this letter, again, James wrote this letter because the church at the time was going through a lot of pain and a lot of hurt. Why was the church going through a lot of pain and a lot of hurt? The top two reasons implied in this letter is because, one, there's internal conflict that the church was experiencing from within. Two, there's a lot of persecution that the church was experiencing from without, from outside. And the purpose of James writing this letter is to help the church, to love the church, to navigate through this hard period. How? By rebuking the church of whatever internal sins is causing this division from within, and to encourage the church to endure whatever external sins and persecutions that are coming from without, from outside. That's the purpose of the letter. And this part of the letter is still very much connected to that overall theme. But what's different about this part of the letter is that James here, he kind of ups the intensity a little bit. He's done being nice. And some of you here are sitting here thinking, he was never really nice at all throughout the whole letter. So yes, there, there is, the, the tone hasn't really changed. But 
he is becoming more specific about who he's addressing in this part of the letter. Who's actually involved? You know how in a hard conversation, for example, there's an issue at your office and, you know, the problem is Bob, let's say. Bob is an older employee who's very um, privileged because of his position and he has a hard time communicating well with other people in the company, okay? So you want to bring it up and the first thing you say is, you know, you, you don't address Bob directly. You kind of go, guys, you know, there's been a few conflicts at the office and uh, someone has ha been having a hard time communicating, right? And then you continue the dialogue. And after a while, you kind of lose patience a little bit and you go, you go more specific. You go, well, certain older employees, I'm not going to name names, but certain older employees are having a hard time. Maybe they feel privileged because they've been here for a while and not communicating well. And then after a while, you just, you're, you're kind of, you've had it and you just kind of get very specific. It's Bob, okay? <laughs> Bob, it's you. What is wrong with you? <laughs> you want to say that? <clears throat> but you get very specific with the person involved and what the issue is to get down to the bottom of the issue. That's kind of what's going on here. James is saying, look, we got to get down to the bottom of it. We, we got to know why there's internal conflict in the church and why there's external persecution from out of the church. Here are the main people involved, very specifically, rich Christians, rich non-Christians, and poor Christians. That's who he's talking to in this passage. Rich Christians, rich non-Christians, and poor Christians. And we're here sitting today thinking... Uh, that's kind of too specific. I kind of feel uncomfortable being labeled like that. And James is saying, tough luck, Bob. It's, we got to get specific. We got to know who it is exactly who's at fault here. Okay? And what is the issue of these people, of us, right? It's pride. James here is saying the reason why there's a lot of internal disunity in the church and the reason why there's a lot of external persecution coming from outside of the church is because rich Christians, rich non-Christians, and poor Christians are all being prideful. And he addresses the pride of all these three groups by rebuking these three groups, although he does rebuke them with the different levels of sensitivity in this passage. Okay? So let's jump in. And I hope we find it helpful and relevant for us today as a church and also for us here today individually. First point. The pride of the rich Christian rebuked. Second point, the pride of the rich non-Christian demolished. Third point, the pride of the poor Christian softened. The pride of the rich Christian rebuked. The pride of the rich non-Christian demolished. The pride of the poor Christian softened. Okay. First point, the pride of the rich Christian rebuked. James starts this part of the letter with, with quite some intensity. Look at verse 13. He starts off saying, come now. In the English, it feels more like, look you, look you, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Okay, so from the get-go, we see that James is, it's kind of, it's an intense tone, so it's a rebuke. Who is he rebuking? A wealthy person. How do you know he's wealthy or she's wealthy? Because at the time, traveling is not something like we do today. Today, anybody can travel. You can just get on a plane or get on a car and just go somewhere to this town or that town. Back then, only really rich people had the ability to travel like this. And plus, you see that verse 13 is essentially a business plan. This guy saying, I'm going to go here, I'm going to make this trade, and hopefully by the end of the year, we're going to increase revenue by this much. That's what he's saying. So it's clear from the opening verse that James is addressing a wealthy person. But how can we know that this wealthy person is a Christian? Well, by the way, he's rebuking this person. 
He's rebuking this person in verse 13 this, for saying, Today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. James is saying, you shouldn't talk like that. You shouldn't talk like that. Instead, talk like this. Go to verse 15. <coughs> if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. James saying, say that instead. Now, the phrase, the Lord, back then, kurios, in the Greek, is a very specific term, especially in the Bible, referring to Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. So James here is assuming that this person, this rich person he's talking to, is someone who acknowledges Jesus Christ as kurios, as Lord and Savior. He's saying, don't just make plans, acknowledge Christ in your plans. Plus, if you go to verse 17, skip to verse 17 with me, this person apparently knows the right thing to do and fails to do it. You see? So this person knows the Lord, knows the truth, but yet they're not living out their faith in their daily planning. Okay? So this is a rich Christian that, that should know better. But how do we know this rich Christian is not living out their faith in their daily planning? Is it just because this person didn't say the phrase, if the Lord wills? Is that all James wants us to say? You know, if the Lord wills, we shall eat at Dintai Fung. Is that, is the if the Lord wills part, is that the part that James is most worried about? No. It's not just about the words you say before you make your plans, James is saying. It's the attitude you have while you're making them. The attitude you have while you're making them. The person in verse 13, it's prideful. Why? Because he or she is making plans as if they know what the future will bring. They're presumptuous to know the future, that he'll still even be alive, you see. James here is saying, it's, it's not wrong to make plans. It's not. Look at the person in verse 15, the right person. This is how you should sit, talk, he says. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. The person in verse 15 is still making plans. It's not wrong to make plans. It's not wrong to save up for emergencies. It's not wrong to save up for a kid's college tuition. It's not wrong to do all these things, to do this and do that. That's okay. But a lot of us, James is saying, we're doing it in such a way that clearly forgets God is in control of the future. Sometimes my three-year-old daughter, Elena, after she wakes up, she tells me how her day is going to go. Okay, sometimes she goes, Daddy, when I wake up, uh, after I wake up, uh, I'm going to go to Emmy's house. And then after I go to Emmy's house, I'm going to go to school. And then after I go to school, you're going to pick me up and we're going to go straight to the ice cream place with the gummy bears in it. And then after that, we're going to go to the jump jump place. The jump jump place is a, is a um, playground that we go to. We're going to go to the jump jump place. And after that, on the way home, we're going to buy an Elsa cake. And then after that, we're going to finish off the day with popcorn dinner, watching Paw Patrol. And I tell her, mm-hmm, yeah, that's all going to happen. Good luck with that. <laughs> this is what we do to God oftentimes. We're presumptuous. We take over. You know, God, here's the correct schedule for the future, and I hope you see it too. And James is telling them in verse 14, how do you know what tomorrow is going to bring? How do you know? What is your life? You're a mist. You appear for a little while here and then you vanish. Don't be so presumptuous. 
And why are we so presumptuous? James continues in verse 16, because we're boastful. We're proud. We think we are qualified to write the rest of the story. Elena, my daughter, is not qualified to schedule out her day yet. It would not be in her best interest to have that kind of power. It would be in her best interest to say instead, if daddy wills. And it'd be in my best interest to say, if mommy wills. Because <laughs> it's our job to make sure her, she does not have, not have that kind of knowledge. She doesn't know what's best for her. It's our job to plan out her day, not hers. And look, we're not qualified to do God's job for him either, of writing the future. Do you know why you're often anxious about the future? Let me ask you, what do you think is the emotion that people feel when they're placed in a job that they're not qualified to do? You ever been placed in a job you're not qualified to do? You remember what you felt? What did you feel? You felt anxious. You know why you feel anxious about the future? Because you're not qualified to know it. But you insert yourself in that position. That's why you feel anxious. See, James here is connecting anxiety with pride. Because in one sense, we realize we're not qualified to do the job. We don't know the future, right? Anxiety. But in another sense, this anxiety is causing us to want to take over God's job and make sure the future happens the way we want it to happen. Pride. He's connecting anxiety with pride. Let's call this connection the anxiety of pride. I actually experienced this a few months ago. I experienced it all the time, but I experienced it very vividly a few months ago while my wife, Tatiana, and Elena, my daughter, were in the U.S., and I was here with Liam, my, my youngest son, um, and he had a fever. This was before the coronavirus, okay, so relax. He had a fever, and he usually responds very well to medicine, so I gave him medicine that night and the morning of, and usually his fever goes down really, really fast. But for some reason, this virus, I guess, was particularly strong, and he, his fever wouldn't go down, and I was confused. You know, what do I do? And I was holding him in my arms. I remember this was 7.30 in the morning after he woke up, and I was thinking to myself, okay, I think I need to go to the doctor. I'm, I'm not sure here. And I was holding him as I was thinking about going to the doctor. His head started to bang on my shoulders repetitively. And I thought, you know, he's probably just starting to get comfortable and finding a spot. But then I looked at him because he kept banging his head on my shoulders and I realized he was, he was having a seizure. Like the fever was so high, his body was getting into, into a seizure. And I'm not being hyperbolic here. I've never been more scared in my life because... What's worse is when I really got anxious is that after the fever, his body stiffened a little bit and his eyes rolled back. I have never been more scared in my life. I've never been more anxious in my life. So I rushed to the cab and I found myself starting to talk to myself. And do you know what I was telling myself? It's this. It'll be okay. Everything will be fine. You know, we'll drive to the hospital. Traffic will be clear. The car is not going to break down. It'll be fine. The driver is going to know the quickest way. The ER is not going to be full. A doctor, I mean, the driver will know the quickest way. The doctor will be available. Uh, he won't have brain damage for this. This isn't brain damage. He'll, he'll be okay. We'll do this and we'll do that. And, and it'll be fine. You know what that is? 
That is the anxiety of pride. Because in all honesty, I didn't know if any of that was going to happen. I don't know if the traffic was going to be clear, or if the car is going to make it, or if the doctor in the ER is going to be available, or if the driver knows the quickest way, or if he has, will have brain damage from this, or worse. I don't know. But I kind of convinced myself that I knew what the future holds. Why? Because if not, I'd crumble. I won't be able to function. I pridefully presumed upon myself knowledge only God knows because I was anxious and unknown. I don't know the future. That's the anxiety of pride. Now, most of the examples in our lives won't be that extreme. But do you know why we pretend to know the future sometimes? Do you know why you do that? It's because we're all scared. We're all anxious to admit that we actually have very little control of how this whole thing is going to end. We're anxious. Because of that, we settle with the illusion that we do have control over it. And you know what item best sells that illusion? Money. We really, really, really believe that having more of it increases control and minimizes risk. We really believe that. The anxiety of pride causes us to deny the fact that there are forces beyond our control and we're anxious so we pump up our chest and we say, I'll do this and I'll do that and I'll go here and I'll go there and I'll save up and I'll collect and then everything will be fine. Right? Right? I don't know. See, James here isn't primarily addressing the money. He's addressing the anxiety that the rich are tempted to soothe through their finances, as if having more money gives them control over the unknown. Here's the issue James is saying. Here's the main issue. Rich Christians, the issue is that often a lot of you have a hard time with being human. You're not okay with the limitations of your humanity. You're often not okay with the fact that you have very little amount of data of how this thing will work out. You're not okay with being out of control. And you try to ascend the limitations of humanity. How? By stack, stacking up revenue. Doing that won't minimize risk. It won't. All it'll do is increase your pride. That's his point. You see how this could affect the unity of the church? Money isn't the issue. Richness isn't the issue. It's the attitude you have. is what you think it can give you. It can't make you to God. And this hurts the church unity because, of course, if the church is filled with a bunch of rich Christians that think their money has gained them some kind of power, some kind of control that transcends the limitations of humans, it's going to be hard for them not to look upon financially poor Christians and be tempted to think in their hearts... Look at them, mere mortals. They have no control, they have no power. Unlike me, who will today or tomorrow go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. It's the attitude, James is saying. If you have that kind of attitude, you'll never promote church unity. And the financially poor Christians, they're either gonna be hurt by these rich Christians or they may be intimidated by these rich Christians, or, or what I think is worse, 
is they may end up worshiping these rich Christians. And neither of those promote church unity. James says in verses 16 to 17, all this is a result of arrogance, evil, and sin. He's done being nice. So now we move forward in our passage today, and James turns up the heat even more as he addresses a second group of people in chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Here he turns his attention to rich non-Christians. Because remember, James is not just interested in protecting the church from internal division within at that day, between rich and poor Christian uh, dissension at that day. He also wanted to protect the church from external persecution done by rich and powerful people from outside of the church, which leads us to our second point. (coughs) The pride of the rich non-Christian demolished. Now in chapter 5, verse 1, James opens up with the same phrase and says, come now, you know, look you. And we see, you know, there again, James is talking to rich people. Come now, you rich. But here, James is referring to a different group of rich people. How do we know that? Well, look at how he describes them. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming. Weeping and howling is Old Testament language for God's eternal judgment. And you see more judgment language here at the end of verse 3, you know, eaten by fire, you know, it's pretty, you know, crazy. And uh, verse 5, the day of slaughter, these are all intense language. And we'll see why James emphasizes God's judgment later in, in our third point. But for now, it does make it clear to us that James here in chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, is talking to rich Christians, yes, but a different group of rich Christians who have not trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of their sins. A different group of rich Christians who will still be held accountable by God for their own sins, you see. And, and look, these guys James is addressing in chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, the rich, powerful Christians who are persecuting the church from outside, they're doing pretty bad things. Let's take a look at all that they're doing. One, it says, they're, they're greedy hoarders. Look at verses 2 to 3. Your riches have rotted and garments are moth-eaten. Meaning their wealth is just kind of sitting there in the bank, rotting. Their clothes are are piling up, rotting. And James says, this is going to be evidence to you of your greed. My old church in the United States, Second Presbyterian Church, once had a Bible study series talking about the seven deadly sins. They went through, you know, the seven uh, different uh, sins and had seven different sessions for each sin, you know, pride, lust, envy, gluttony, sloth, all that. And every one of them had really, really, really good attendance. A lot of people showed up. You know, they really wanted to grow and learn how to not be prideful or how to not be envious and all that. But there's one particular session that no one came to. No one. And my pastor was really shocked. You know, what's going on? Everybody went to the other ones, but no one came to this one. And guess which session it is that no one came to? Which sin? Greed. At this point, my pastor wasn't even mad. He was just more interested. It's like a social experiment for him. And he started asking around, why did you, you went to all the others, why didn't you go to greed? And he asked everybody that would usually come. And you know what they said the reason was? It's not because the timing didn't work out. It's not because they had a busy day. Every one of them said, because they didn't feel like this was the one sin they struggled with the most. They didn't feel like they struggled with greed. You know, they struggled with sloth and lust and envy, but Greed, you know, it's not the one they needed to prioritize. 
See, that's what's dangerous about greed. No one thinks they're in it. No one thinks they struggle with it. You know, it's not like adultery. No one wakes up in the morning and goes, you're not my wife. You know, it's not like, you know, for the most part, you're doing it while you're in it, okay? That's how adultery works. Greed doesn't really work like that. That's why it's so dangerous. You're in it without even realizing that you are. And James here in verse 3 is saying, look at the evidence. Look at the evidence. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you. If you're really free from greedy hoarding, how do you justify all your stuff? He's done being nice. It's rotting. It's just sitting there, stagnant, doormat. I'm not saying don't save, but you have to ask yourself, is my saving faithfulness for the future, or has it transcended into the area of greedy hoarding? That's for you and the Lord to dialogue through. John Calvin said it very succinctly, God has not appointed gold for rust, nor garments for moths, but on the contrary, he has designed them as aids and helps to human life. If you really are free from greedy hoarding, how do you justify all your rotting stuff? And why do we think we have the right to hoard all this stuff instead of use it to aid human life? Pride. Pride. Two, not only are they greedy hoarders, <coughs> but they hold back their employees' wages so that they can live in luxury. They don't pay their staff so that they can live in luxury. Verses four to six. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now this one really convicted me, not because I hold back our CCC staff salary, okay? I don't have the power to do that, nor am I the one that makes the transition, okay? It's not, that's not, I am convicted because I do sometimes slack in paying the workers at my house, like our nannies and our, our house helpers. I do sometimes slack in not paying them their wage on the day that we have agreed upon, the end of the month. I kind of give it, it's okay that I forget a day or two, or it's, it's not a big deal. And at, at, at the moment when it happens, I just thought I'm being forgetful. Like I'm busy, you know, I don't really have time to do in this day, so I'm just a little busy, I'm just forgetful. But then I think about it a little bit more. And I don't think I can chalk it up to just forgetfulness. I think, if I'm really honest, it's actually a matter of priority. Because we really don't forget things that are up high in our priority list, do we? We don't. Out of the 20 or so weddings I've done, I've never once seen a bride forget to put her makeup on. It just doesn't happen. It's just, it's on the priority list. So the reason why I don't find it uh, why I forget is because I don't find it up on my priority list. It's not urgent. And, and you know why it's not up on my priority list? You know why it's not an urgency for me? It's because, if I'm really honest, I really think to myself, what are they going to do about it? What, are they going to quit? They need this job. They have no power in this matter. All the power lies on me, so it's okay if I miss a day or two and I pay it later. I'm repenting from that, and I feel like I've done better in that, hopefully, and continue to do so. But what made me justify? What made me forget? Because I feel like I have all the power, and they don't. What is that? It's pride. It's pride. 
Look at the third thing these people are doing. Not only are they holding their wealth in pride, not only are they robbing their people, uh, their uh, staff of salary because of pride, but verse 6 says, they're even willing to murder a righteous person, the righteous one for it. And to feel the right to take somebody's life for your own financial interest, that is the epitome of pride. Who do you think you are? God is telling them. Pride. It's the reason why the church is destroying itself from within. There's a lot of fighting and disunity, and it's also the reason why there's a lot of persecution coming to the church from outside. Okay, so let's summarize again. Chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, our first chunk of the, of the text. James is writing that for the sake of the church. James rebukes uh, rich Christians inside the church for their pride, which is causing all kinds of internal division. And in chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, in that chunk of the text, for the sake of the church, James rebukes the rich non-Christians for their pride who are uh, 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 hurting the church, who are persecuting the church because their pride is causing all this kind of persecution. But there's another group involved in this whole complicated mess of a situation, another group that I believe James is also addressing here for their pride, though in a much more gentle and subtle way, and that is poor Christians, financially poor Christians. Where do we see that? Last point, the pride of the poor Christian softened. Now look at verse six, and especially the last part of verse six. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, James talks to this rich uh, non-Christian who's persecuting the church. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. That's a bit weird. Think about why that might could be. Why would James put that last sentence there? He does not resist you. Was he trying to make the rich uh, non-Christians feel guilty? Like, look, look at what you're doing. They're not fighting back. Stop doing that. You know, are, is he trying to stop the persecution to make them feel guilty in that way? Was that the purpose of the sentence? I mean, you could argue that, I guess. But there's a more plausible explanation that many commentators agree on. What is it? Many commentators would say that this last part of the letter, he does not resist, was actually James talking to the poor non-Christians, uh, the powerless non-Christians in the church who have no power, who's receiving all this persecution, telling them how they're supposed to react. Don't fight back. Don't, don't hurt those who hurt you. Why do we say that? Because we have to remember who this letter was originally written to. Remember in the opening of the, of the letter, James was not addressing this letter to people in general. James was addressing this letter to the church, to people in the church. So if you think about it, it's actually very unlikely that the rich non-Christians James addresses in chapter 5 verses 1 to 6 would even see this letter at all. They won't even read that rebuke at all. So this last part, verse 6, he does not resist you, was actually written for the poor Christians in the church who are being persecuted for their faith by these rich, powerful non-Christians to remind them of how they're supposed to act in the persecution, and that's not to retaliate back, not to hurt those who's hurting them. And one more step, stick with me. Think about it. If, this, if, a, if, a, if a Christian in the church is not to put on his own justice uh, to the powerful people who are persecuting them, if these poor Christians are not to fight back and, and hurt these people who are hurting them, what things should they be reminded of? Who's going to administer justice? God will. It's God's job to administer justice. It's not yours. That's why James was very vivid in his judgment language that we read earlier. 
the fires and the, you know, the um, wailing and gnashing and of teeth. And uh, he was very vivid of that to remind the poor Christians, look, don't retaliate back. It's not your job to fight back. It's God's job. This letter is not primarily for the non-Christians outside of the church. It's primarily for the rich and poor Christians in the church. James is trying to tell the rich Christians that they in their pride rich Christians, tend to play God by thinking their money can help them control the future. This hurts church unity because it causes them to look down upon poor Christians. That's not a Christ-like attitude. And James is telling the poor Christians that they, in their pride, tend to play God by thinking they have the right to judge and retaliate back against these rich Christians or non-rich Christians or whoever is persecuting them. This also hurts church unity because it causes them to fight back and hurt those who hurt them. That's not a Christ-like attitude either, you see? To both groups, James is saying, lay down your pride. Stop playing God. Don't let your money puff you up. Lay down your pride. Don't administer your own justice. Lay down your pride. Those are both God's job. And look, until you're able to do this, church, you're going to have a really hard time being friends with one another. You're going to have a hard time having fellowship. You'll always be divided if you don't lay down your pride, rich or poor, whatever your financial state may be. And, and we're thinking here, you know, okay, that's great, but it's not very helpful because I know what I'm supposed to do. I know I'm supposed to lay down my pride. The problem is my pride just won't seem to lay down. That's the problem. And this is where I think James here in this last part of verse six is reminding us of another thing that is very, very profound. And it was interesting about this verse six, when James refers to the innocent and righteous people that are being persecuted, he refers to them in the singular noun. The righteous person, or quite literally, the righteous one was murdered. The righteous one was persecuted. It's weird because it, could have, it would have made more sense if James said, you have condemned and murdered these righteous people and they do not fight back. But yet James said, you condemned the righteous one. Why did he switch it to the singular pronoun? I think, and many commentators would agree, it's, he's reminding us of something profound. Who is the righteous person who was condemned? Who was the righteous one who didn't resist when people persecuted him although he was innocent. Hmm? Who was the righteous one who did not resist, who gave up all of his savings, all of his possessions, as the rich and powerful uh, 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 non-Christians out there murdered him on the cross? Who was it? Jesus Christ, our Lord. Look, your pride will never stay down unless you first see your Lord lay down his pride for you. We won't be able to lay down our pride until we see he first did it for us and died in our place. See, this should hit the rich and the poor Christian both at the same time. To the anxious, rich, and prideful Christian, James is saying, lay down your pride. Let go of control. You can have peace even in the unknown. Your future is fixed now. You're safe. You're his. You, you know the outcome will be will be okay. Jesus Christ laid down his control on that cross so that you can know 
everything is under control. He laid down his control on that cross to die in your place so that you can have the certainty that everything is under control. It's okay. He, he was able to turn even the worst event in human history to become the best thing that ever happened in your life, which is your salvation. The cross he turned into your salvation. Can you do that? You, you're not qualified. It's not your job. He, he lost, he left his control. He laid down his pride so that you can know everything's under control. Stacking up money won't minimize the risk and only make you more prideful. And to the poor persecuted Christian, whether you're being persecuted by rich Christians in the church or rich non-Christians from outside of the church, James is saying, lay down your pride too. Let go of revenge. It's not your job to, pun to punish the prideful rich or the uh, 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 Christian or non-Christian. It's not your job to punish them for their sins. That's God's job. You're not qualified. He's much more qualified than you are. Your job is to love them. Your job is to endure. Your job is to sacrifice and care for them, even those who persecute you, in the same way your Lord sacrificed and endured your sins on your behalf. That's your job. Piling up money won't minimize future risk. It'll only make you more prideful. Holding back forgiveness won't satisfy you. It'll only make you more prideful. Give and forgive. That's the kind of love that the righteous one showered upon you so that you may have fellowship with one another. Until you're able to do that, it's going to be really hard to be friends. Shower one another with that kind of love for the sake of the church, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ your Lord, to whom all glory be. Let's pray. Father, what a passage that makes it clear we all fall short. Thank you for making it clear that pride does not originate in amounts of money. But pride is something that human beings have struggled even before the concept of money was created. And that is our forefathers in the garden who themselves wanted to become God. We too struggle with that same tendency and temptation today. We want to control the future. We want to take justice upon our own hands. And by doing so, we mess up the church. Forgive us, Father, and thank you for including sinners like us in this church washed by your blood, saved by your grace. And remind us, Father, of the pride you laid down, of the control you let go, of the money you sacrificed for us, so that we may then display this kind of love to one another so that the world may know who you are by the way your people love, endure, sacrifice, forgive, give, and care for one another. Help us. Remind us of our lives. It is a mist and it vanishes. We're here just for a moment. Let us spend it not accumulating wealth nor accumulating people's faults. Let us take every step faithfully until he, the lamb who was slain, returns. 
and claims glory for himself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.